0: The Ringer Dave Hill takes you on a journey into the underground lives and careers of six professional gamblers. This eight-part podcast is a unique look into the gambling world that you don't want to miss. Check out Gamblers on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This episode is brought to you by Lincoln in the all-new 2024 Nautilus Hybrid, featuring a customizable 48-inch panoramic display, available Revel audio system, and available perfect position front seats with active motion massage. Oh my God the world isn't wide enough. Visit Lincoln.com to learn more. Some models, trims, and features may not be available or may be subject to change. Check with your local retailer for current information. Lincoln and Nautilus are trademarks of Ford or its affiliates. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from abc pants are really in a league of their own buy a pair right now at lululemon.com
2: david i want to start the show today by pointing out a choice bit of the yashar ali profile in la magazine that we didn't talk about last week okay the author peter Kiefer asked ali who else he could contact to talk about him to write this profile oh right and Ali Kiefer wrote, quote, replied by sending a spreadsheet listing the personal emails and cell phone numbers of more than 40 boldface names, including Busy Phillips, Mandy Moore, Kristen Davis, Piers Morgan. Kiefer winds up talking to Jake Tapper and Maggie Haberman. In a magazine profile, those kinds of interviews have a name, just like there's a journalism name for the nut graph or the kicker. Mm-hmm. Those interviews are called secondaries, right? As in secondary interviews. So can we spend a moment talking about the art of the secondary here at the top of the podcast?
0: Uh, absolutely, we can. But before one one quick note about that about the, the piece you just mentioned, um, the sure. one thing one thing I didn't get to ask when it was actually in my notes was about that list and I because I desperately wanted to know as I was reading it how quickly. That Excel spreadsheet came w- w- ke- was returned to him right? I mean, it's like, do you have any other people you can interview if it's like a day or two later the Excel spreadsheet arrived in my inbox is a is very different than thirty seconds later a fully prepared Excel <laughs> spreadsheet arrived in my inbox, right?
2: yeah, That's I just a, have that, a friend list, yeah, that is shareable with anybody who contacts me,
0: yeah, well anyway, let's talk about secondaries
2: let's talk about secondaries because these often pop up when somebody is doing a celebrity profile. Mm-hmm. So I'm interviewing the celebrity and then I'm also going to interview other famous people who are going to talk to me about the celebrity. So a couple years ago, when Steven Roderick profiled Ringo star for Rolling Stone, he also got Paul McCartney to talk to him. Hmm. So you have Ringo in the profile, but you also have Paul in the profile talking about Ringo. I looked up uh, the New Yorkers, Ted friend. He did a profile of Ben Stiller in 2012 so he gets Ben Stiller, but he also gets Robert Downey Jr. and Will Farrow and Owen Wilson and Judd Apatow, et cetera, et cetera. In the high-flying days of magazines, every profile was kind of like an Ocean's Eleven movie. He <laughs> had the whole lineup of people. And I was, I was thinking about this last night. It was, it's almost the secondary is almost like a double flex. First, there's a flex on behalf of the writer of the profile. You know what? I, I hey, look, you know. Not only am I going to quote multiple famous people in this article, Mm -hmm. I'm just kind of going to slide one in just one single quote. So if I did a Steve Carell profile, just be like, yeah, you know, he showed up every day with the weirdest grin on his face, said John Krasinski. And then I'll never mention John Krasinski again. (laughs)
0: Right.
2: Right. I just I won't and I won't even say like I called John Krasinski to get some information. I'll just slide it in there Mm -hmm. like I was calling an academic or somebody who was very available on the phone. And of course, as you know, if you are writing the magazine profile, it is almost certain that the only reason John Krasinski or other secondary is calling you back is because the person you're writing about asked them to call you. Exactly. Yeah. But you don't have to tell the reader that, right? So that's flex number one. Flex number two comes from this Peter Kiefer article. The celebrity is kind of doing a little bit of a flex there to say, look at all the people I can have call you on my behalf and testify to my comic or actorly or whatever it is qualities to you the magazine. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So so we're gonna so I'm gonna do this. Like if I was writing a profile of David shoemaker the wrestling writer, it'd be one thing to say, well, you should call Brian Curtis. Yeah, that's easy. He's easy to get on the phone. It's just like, yeah. yeah, you should call The Rock. I, I heard he's uh he likes my work a lot. You should uh you should call you should call Ben Stiller. I think he's a big fan of mine. <laughs> you know, just and here's his number, right? I'll send him a note to tell him you'll be calling. <laughs> That's it's just an amazing thing. And I think it's like one of those, it very much feels like a product of another age of magazine writing. Yeah. Which is why I think this one stuck out to me so much because how many people are A going to even produce those for the magazine now in this. You know, less powerful media era we live in, but what also magazine is just going to be running those quote after quote after quote? Well,
0: yes. I mean, this one actually felt pretty particular in a way that I wonder if it'll change the game a little bit when it comes to secondaries, right? Because like it's easy. It's like like the secondary list is sort of uh, reminds me of the book blurb list, right? When you're putting out, when you're writing a book, your publisher's like even sometimes even with the proposal, you you submit a list of twenty successful writers that you know who might be willing to give you blurbs for your book when it comes out right mm-hmm. now whether or not they come through with it obviously there's a lot of you know life life gets in the way and, and whatever else but you know they're, they're sort of you're sort of on the record saying these are my friends or coworkers or you know business associates etc but when you write a blurb You know, there's a certain expectation. You you write the blurb, and it's not like you have to give interviews about the book. It's not like you have to go to bat for the book in public at any other point down the line, right? And I think a lot of people probably agree to be secondaries thinking it's going to be a book blurb. And then in in the odd, (laughs) then sometimes there's a story like this one in which you're actually interrogated as to how you know the person. And you realize along the way, probably, that this isn't a glowing profile (laughs) to which you're just like, you know, lending a voice in harmony or something. You know, this is actually like some sort of investigation. That you're not prepared to be a part of. So I, I, it it is. This is this is definitely a different sort of setup. I'm glad that you brought it up. But yeah, I mean, it's just not. It it it, we are in a different world now, but for a lot of different reasons.
2: Yeah. So it's like there's like the the normal standard secondary, which is like Robert Downey Jr. But Mm -hmm. then there's the kind of fraught secondary. If you're calling up Robert Downey Jr. and being like, Hey, do you really think Ben Stiller's funny? Because I don't. (laughs) and i'm gonna tell i'm gonna tell the world that he's not funny and and i'm gonna ask you some tough questions about how you're really friends with him like do you even know ben stiller i know (laughs) the tropic thunder thing but did you even meet before that that it's funny because it just feels like such a such a layup of a of a magazine device but in this case it becomes kind of an interesting device as you say it's for investigation how how do you know this guy Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, are you are, are, I, How do you? What, what do you think of this guy's reporting techniques? Can I tell you my best ever secondary, which that you, you may that remember? You
0: yourself have acquired. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me.
2: Writing uh, for the Ringer about the sportscaster Jim Gray, longtime veteran of uh, of network television, ESPN, etc. One of Jim Gray's friends, longtime friends, is Jack Nicholson. <laughs> so I'm doing my usual writing about the sportscasters, writing about the sports media thing. And in the course of this profile, at a pre-appointed time, my phone rings one day, and it's Jack. It's really Jack. And he's happy to talk about his friendship with Jim Gray. Oh my God. And gosh. I did the flex thing I'm talking about. I didn't tell our boss, Sean Fennessy, at all that that had happened. <laughs> I just sort of turned in the piece. And there's a, you know, comma, end quote, said Jack Nicholson. <laughs> in the story oh man did i feel good let me tell you second the secondary can really make a writer's day <laughs> coming up on today's show david the atlantic's edward isaac devere stops by to talk about his 2020 campaign book battle for the soul how do you write a campaign book and hope all your scoops last when you're competing with the best political writers in the world all that and more in the press box a part of the ringer podcast network Hello, media consumers. Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker here, along with Erica Cervantes. David, we got we got a real political writer on the show today. Edward Isaac Devere writes for The Atlantic. He has just published this new book called "Battle for the Soul: Inside the Democrats' Campaigns to Defeat Trump." I have a lot of questions, but you know, you and I, I think today may take a break on the political questions that we often consider on this podcast. Mm hmm. And maybe sort of push him a little bit into the how do you write a campaign book in 2021? Yes, please. Because to me, I'm always amazed at how much juice the campaign book still has mm-hmm. as a genre. I feel it was declared dead like in 1996 when Michael Lewis wrote one that was kind of funny, but was really just about like all the big marginal figures in that presidential race mm-hmm. okay man if michael lewis is you know just 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 wrung out by this format who what hope is there for anybody but it kind of keeps keeps on keeping on mm-hmm. i know just personally i want to read them oh yeah because there are like the big details that get all the you know aggregated everywhere and then there's those little choice little things that are just wonderful and you remember forever mm-hmm a few of which we can get into with Isaac here. So let us talk about campaign books and how one writes one. And by the way, when one writes one, if you're a full-time political reporter for The Atlantic, here is Edward Isaac Devere. All right, Isaac, let's start here. When did you decide to write a campaign book? And when did you get a contract to write a campaign book?
3: I had been toying with different ways of writing about what the Democrats were going to be going through in the Trump years, starting from very soon after Trump won, and certainly by February or March of 2017. And it went back and forth, went back and forth. And then it was uh, in the spring of 2018, around March, when it occurred to me that there would be a lot of candidates running and that uh, they would be interesting people and also representative of the different shards of the Democratic Party. You'd have the progressives with Warren and Sanders. You'd have the traditionalists with Biden. You'd have a lot of female candidates, a generational argument made by a Buttigieg. And uh, and and at that point, it wasn't clear if or O'Rourke would run, but that sort of thing. Uh, black candidates, Latino candidates, all this stuff going on. And so there was a proposal that we kind of recalibrated in the spring of 2018 it sold in july of 2018 and the proposal said this is going to be the craziest election in american history and maybe the most important in american history and uh, obviously i did not know (laughs) uh then all of what 2020 would hold but uh the proposal turned out to be true
2: I was going to say A line in a proposal That actually turns out To be true (laughs) (laughs) This is an occasion
3: It's uh, And it was the first time That I'd written A book proposal So I wasn't aware That you're supposed To puff it up Into things that uh, That are not true I do believe that even If not for the pandemic If not for George Floyd Dying and everything That it set off If not for Ruth Bader Ginsburg Dying six weeks Before the election All these things It still would have been The most important election In American history It still would have been The craziest election In American history With everything that was Going there Uh, But But uh, things, it's like Spinal Tap. It was at 10, and it it went uh, not just to 11, but but far beyond that.
0: You say this is your first book proposal, but obviously there have been many, many campaign books that preceded it. I don't think I need to ask you what made this campaign cycle unique, because you alluded to it in your last answer. And I think, you know, you can only say Donald Trump so many times, but what – you, what 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 was the unique challenge, do you think, of covering this, of writing this book? What challenges were different than than maybe in cycles past would have been? I, in the
3: last fifteen years, political reporting, as all kinds of reporting, but especially political reporting, has become so in the minute, uh, and and people feel, and often with good reason, like they're getting a lot of the story as it's happening, or at most a week later. Uh, and so the challenge was. To figure out how to take people behind the stories that they were seeing in enough of a way that they would feel like they were getting a lot of fresh things, which uh, I think, I hope I did, Uh, and, uh, and to do it in a way that didn't get too small, that didn't get into, like, oh, this person whom you've never heard of had a fight with that person. That, that stuff doesn't really matter. But get at these bigger issues. And there were so many things, really to a, a degree that surprised me when I was working on it, where I would retrace the steps of something that had happened or, or have people months after the fact tell me the stories that they wouldn't they wouldn't have been ready to tell in the moment that were surprising, that that were saying things that I I was like, how did I miss that? How did that happen? And I didn't know it and nobody knew it. Uh, And so I don't think that that's knocking other reporters necessarily. It's that as these things are playing out, the, the campaigns, the candidates have really good reason to keep it secret. (laughs) Um, And, uh, and then, uh, if you let a little bit of time pass and you keep working and working over people, uh, you can crack open a lot of things that, that, uh, you never would have really realized were there.
2: So give us an example of that from the book, a story that seemed like it was one thing in the moment. And then months later, after you badgered these people by text and by phone, it turned out to be something else.
3: Uh, And sometimes in person, even during the pandemic, there were a couple of in person, not as much as I uh, am used to in doing reporting. Uh, One of the – there were a lot of stories like that, but but one that I think was pretty apparent to people just because it seems so out in the open was what happened over Medicare for All and tracking back this story of how Bernie Sanders in 2017 was – Operating on two parallel tracks. First of all, he believes in Medicare for all. He wanted it to happen when he introduced the bill in the Senate. It was with the intention of getting serious about the ideas that he talked about on the campaign trail, but also finding this completely parallel track of the political uh, intentions behind it, of a way of making other candidates essentially have to subsume themselves to him on a major, major policy fight so that when it came time, for the 2020 race, if Sanders ran, uh, which a lot of people around him thought he would, that he would have uh, a level of ownership uh, uh, over the the rest of the field, that they would be able to, that, that he would be able to say, oh, yes, this big idea that you're all signing onto, that's actually my idea, and nobody is going to be as pure about it as I am, and that would give him a big political advantage. That's something, uh, honestly, that didn't become clear in the reporting to me uh, until – last summer, the summer of 2020, uh, how that had gone. Uh, but there were many aspects of of the story like that, uh, the, the of the what happens in the book like that, I should say, many stories like that. Uh, and But that one where it just, we were watching Medicare for All play out in front of us on the debates. Literally every debate was at least 20 or 30 minutes in the primaries about Medicare for All. And it was like a revelation after after I started to see the report, after people who were involved talked to me about what those negotiations had been, where I was like, oh, like, it was like the matrix, kind of. like You could see the numbers, right, all of a sudden. And, uh, and and for something that big to have not been obvious to me, or again, to other people who were, uh, many of them, very skilled and watching it very intensely, it, it's amazing to me.
2: And just to drill down on that, we saw, Dave and I were covering this on the, when we were covering the debates on this show, we saw Elizabeth Warren being in this awkward position the debates of saying, I endorse everything that guy says about health care. We, we saw Kamala Harris going, I think I endorse him, <laughs> but I don't quite know what I'm endorsing here. But what you're saying, and you report in the book, is that Bernie actually throws down this marker, kind of anticipating that this is going to be the thing that I'm going to be the brand name health care plan here. And I'm going to force my potential hypothetical opponents to take the Bernie brand healthcare plan before the campaign even starts.
3: And the relationship with Warren in that is really important, right? Because in 2017, he knows he needs to get Warren to sign on to give him the credibility with the democratic world at large, which he knew he didn't have. He had his supporters who were behind him, but to have this become the big thing that was there. And I was at the press conference ultimately when Medicare for All was announced in 2017. And I remember looking around and thinking, like, there are a lot of senators here and a lot of people who I think maybe are going to run for president. Like Cory Booker's here, Kamala Harris is here, Kirsten Gillibrand. Okay. Uh, and seeing how that all played out, but that Sanders, it was in, he knew in the sort of weaker spot with progressives and with the democratic world uh, writ large, and needed Warren to give him the credibility by signing on to Medicare for All for him to get that idea advanced. And then it becomes the big idea uh, that that more than anything else was discussed in the democratic primary debates. And in some ways, more than anything else was discussed in the democratic primary, even though, as we all know, there was a whole hell of a lot going on in the country. uh, And There was no way, I think importantly to think about it, there was no way that Medicare for All was ever going to happen in any kind of uh, short-term way. Maybe years from now, politics will change so much that we can actually have a discussion of whether people want to pass Medicare for All. But the votes are nowhere near there. And yet it was still this big thing because of what Sanders did.
0: When you talk about uh, the sort of realization of what Sanders was doing. I'm sure there's many other instances of those sorts of realizations as you as you write the book. How much of that is going on in real time on the ground as you're reporting? And how much is that like kind of been reporting since the campaign ended? Uh, I don't know
3: what the percentages were, but uh, what happened was as I was getting ready to bring the proposal to publishers to see if they would buy it. And then uh, more so after they bought it, I went to each of the campaigns and said – Uh, And at that point, they were prospective campaigns, but you could pretty much tell who was going to be running. And I said, look, I'm going to work on this book, and it's going to come out in 2021. It's all set. (laughs) Uh, And I want you guys to be involved in it. I want to be able to have a freshness of the reporting to it that you can only get if you give me under what we all call embargo, right? Um, And you can have uh, reporting and conversations uh, that – were put – I had a different notebook. I had a different tape recorder. The candidates, uh, some of them would make fun of me. They would say, like, which tape recorder is this going on? Um, And I'd say, okay, this is the book tape recorder. Sometimes in the middle of an interview, I would say, okay, that was good for right now for this article that I'm working on. Can we switch over? And and I would reach into my bag and take it out. Uh, That – Zented a challenge to me. Uh, for for them, it was about trusting me. And for me, it was about living up to the trust and not letting things that sometimes I knew were happening seep into the, the conversation or or uh the articles that I was doing uh in the moment. So like a good example of that, and that definitely would have been spicy at the time, was uh I have a scene in the book that's from the the meeting in which Kamala Harris decides. In the the summer of 2018, that she's going to run for president, and uh, there is. A conversation at the end of the meeting where they... It's a moot court uh, and the, the argument presented for her to run and the argument presented against her to run. And her brother-in-law, Tony West, uh, who was the number three in the Justice Department uh, for Obama, takes the don't run argument and he goes really hard after her and criticizes her intensely for her record as a prosecutor and says, you've sold out black people, you put black people in prison and, and, and uh, you betrayed... Uh, what you should be standing for as a progressive. I knew about that conversation uh, by three or four months after it happened, maybe even sooner than that. Uh, And, I knew it would be great for a book. <laughs> I'm glad it's in the book, but I also, of course, knew as a reporter that that would have been really interesting to cover uh, for in in the middle of when Harris was getting attacked pretty heavily for that, and the way that she sort of dismisses the attack in the meeting, and she says, "Yeah, I lock some motherfuckers up, right?" Like, and to have that be her response would have—I'm sure that article would have been well read at the time, uh, but. I couldn't use it then because the people, the way that it had been told to me was, you can't report this until uh, after this is all done, and if I had broken that trust, then first of all the. Uh, person who told it to me initially, and the people who confirmed it for me, never would have said anything else to me again. And you know, the campaign world is a pretty small world. It would have become pretty apparent to people that I was doing that. And so I would often say to them, you know, my business model is dependent on me not screwing this up and not screwing up with you or with anyone else, because then there wouldn't have been as much in the book as there is.
2: I want to talk about two complications of that whole idea of holding some things for the book and then putting some things in the Atlantic. To me, number one is. And this is just the most the most base journalistic level. Aren't you freaked out that somebody at The New York Times or somewhere else is going to learn about that moment with Harris and you're going to you know, get online in the morning and it's going to be in the paper. It's going to be a spicy lead that you would have imagined writing and you're going to lose it. Uh,
3: terrified constantly. Um, and there were a couple of moments that ended up like that. I won't tell you which ones, but I've also been on the other side of it, uh, a couple of years ago, and I won't tell you which one this was. There was something (laughs) that, uh, I knew some people, uh, I I knew someone who was writing a book, uh, and, uh, and I was working on something that was tangentially related, but one of the same people was one who told me this really good story. Uh, and, uh, and I, happened to be talking to this person who was writing the book and I said oh you'll never believe this I'm gonna have this be at the front of the story that I write and I I laid out what it was and this person looked at me with the and we were working for the same news organization um with this look of like you asshole (laughs) (laughs) and I said what's the matter the person said to me well we had that uh ready to go uh and, uh, because it was a collegial thing, we figured out how to make it work, but, uh, I ended up using it much sooner than when the book would have come out. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's, it's a competitive world, right? And I, I, I think that probably there are other campaign books that are underway that are, that will come out in a couple of months. Probably there are some things that showed up in the, this book that would have been in those books and may still be in those books. Uh, Uh, But, uh, you know, you hope as a journalist always that there are people cursing you out for screwing up their plans, (laughs) whether it's uh, competitors or or the politicians we cover.
2: There are no Marquis of Queensberry rules in political journalism. You just got to do it. All right. So that's one complication. Number two complication is is your phone rings. And, oh, it's Jeffrey Goldberg from The Atlantic. Hey, you know, I know you're getting great stuff uh, for this book you're writing. But we want some of these, you know, amazing spicy scoops to be in the Atlantic. And that's an age old problem. It's with sports writers when they're doing the season inside with the team book. It's everybody. So how do you make sure you're getting enough in one bucket, enough in the other bucket?
3: Well, uh, you hopefully have buckets that are full of both uh, kinds of things uh, and when I was uh, the the contract for the book was signed in the summer of 2018 I moved over to the Atlantic in September of 2018 those things are not unrelated uh, there was a conversation about the fact that I would be working on this book when I would be covering the campaign for the Atlantic and everybody went into it eyes open uh, there were of course a couple of moments when there was some tension over this uh, for example uh, the book ended with an interview with Joe Biden that I conducted on February 2nd. It was the first interview that Joe Biden did as president. Uh, the interview was done on the condition that it be used for the book and not be used right away. Uh, of course, The Atlantic, uh, as any news organization would, would love to have the first interview with the president of the United States. Uh, and in the end, the story, uh, I turned part of the interview into a story that ran on the day it published. So The Atlantic had it first, but of course didn't have it exclusively. It was in the book. Uh, those are the sorts of things that we had to negotiate along the way. Uh, and uh, and then there would be occasional conversations. I tried to, uh, for the sake of not putting my editors at The Atlantic in uncomfortable spots, I tried to not tell them about things that I only had because of the reporting for the book but uh, there was one occasion in particular something about uh related to the riot uh, that um that I knew I couldn't use until the book came out and the editor was like, why not? <laughs> it sounds so good. Uh, but there were also things that then uh, were enabled for The Atlantic because I was doing the reporting for the book. So also around the riot, uh, in the book there's a long, longish, it's not so long, but an extended story about Lisa Blunt Rochester, the congresswoman from Delaware, who on the day of the riot is there in the House chamber uh, and she has to be evacuated and ends up taking her member pin off because she's worried that the rioters are going to come kill members of Congress, but she doesn't want to put it away because she's also worried that an unidentified black woman in the Capitol might not be protected. So she decides to hold it in her hand. And then a video uh, ended up leaking of her in the secure location where members of Congress were telling people to put their masks on, right? Because of course, this was still at the very height of COVID. Uh, And I spoke to her for the book and then it was so raw and so vital in the moment that I said to her press secretary, Would you be okay with me taking some of this and putting it in an article for the Atlantic? So which happened. So it was a back and forth constantly in that way.
0: Is there and just a just to drill down on that, is there or would there be like a third bucket for something that you felt so morally obligated to find a way to get out there? Or just at least to go back to the campaign and say, please, I know this was on tape recorder B, but this is, you know, something I think that America deserves to know. Is that that ever a a thing that happens? Yeah. And I think that it didn't come up
3: with me in that way. But uh, if we remember Bob Woodward's last book. Sorry. No, that's something if you remember Bob Woodward's last book, uh, he had the one that came out in September, he had tape of Donald Trump saying that he knew COVID was worse than what he said at the time. And that conversation between Woodward and Trump happened contemporaneously sometime in the spring of 2020, right? And Woodward sat on it until September of 2020 when the book came out, uh, making the argument that that was how he had agreed to do the book and that it needed to be for the book and everything. That, that one is hard. I don't know what I would have done myself presented with that situation because that's a matter of life and death. Uh, I had matters of you know, political intrigue and importance, but nothing that was, uh, I, that was vital if I, in that way, in that like people could die because of this. I don't know what I would have done if that had come up you know if if joe biden had said to me uh in an embargoed interview or something uh that uh he was actually going to uh find some way to accelerate vaccine production or something yeah i'm just trying to figure out what the parallel of the woodward moment would be uh i think you would have to go and push for it uh and make the argument uh because if you go into an interview with an agreement and you want to violate that agreement, you have to or, – or get a permission to violate that agreement, you have to make a pretty good case. Uh, again, I think if Woodward had wanted to, he would have uh, had the case to make. Whether the Trump folks would have been okay with it is a different question. And whether he would have chosen to violate it anyway, that's a question for him. So uh yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I guess I wish that there had been life or death matters in the same way that that had been presented that way. There were uh things like uh you know in the book uh when Trump goes into the hospital uh I knew in the moment from other reporting that I was doing for the book that they thought Trump might die right that 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 was a real consideration on the Biden team uh and that in fact. When they got the, when uh, some of the people woke up that morning when he had announced in the middle of the night that he, was, that he had COVID, that, and they just saw the news alerts and how many emails there were, they thought that, some, that he had been shot or something like that. Uh, that, I guess, is getting closer to what you're talking about, David, right? Uh, but uh, in the end, it, that didn't feel to me like I had to force it in quite the same way.
2: All right, more from Edward Isaac Devere in a second, David. But let us take a moment to do the overworked Twitter joke of the week, where we celebrated a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the Press Box Pod, where they are always, always gratefully received. David, did you catch any of the Westminster Dog Show over the weekend?
0: <laughs>
2: no, no, it was big. In the you Curtis know, you house. know,
0: difficult. You know, I have a hard time with the Westminster Dog Show after after preempting Monday Night Raw all uh-huh. those years.
2: I forgot that that was a that was kind of a traumatic event in your formative years. No <laughs> wrestling because we got the dogs. Uh, a whippet named Bourbon, uh, David made the uh, final group there, but was beaten in the end by a pickaninny. The whippet was beaten by the Piccanese. It was an overward Twitter joke to write "whip it good," but "whip it not good enough." <laughs> Thanks to our good friend Mitch Carr for that one. A tweet from the Washington Post, David. Coronavirus infections are dropping where people are vaccinated, rising where they are not, Post analysis finds. The Washington Post has done an analysis finding that infections are dropping when people are vaccinated, but rising when people are not vaccinated. Mm -hmm. It was an overworked Twitter joke, right? Okay, so I guess the whole vaccine thing is is, uh, for real. (laughs) Thanks to Kyle A. Madsen for that one. It was kind of one of those where it was just like, oh, I I got (laughs) you. Thank you. Uh, and finally, President Joe Biden made his first international trip last week to attend the G7 summit. Uh-huh. Uh, did you see this picture on Twitter? It was a picture of Biden and Boris Johnson and Angela oh, yeah. Merkel. They were all kind of standing on on little raised platforms. Yeah. But here was the weird part. It's the G7, but there are actually nine world leaders in the picture. Yeah. <laughs> Due to membership in the G7, it was an overworked Twitter joke to write, wait, did the G7 actually do the Big Ten thing at some point? (laughs) Just have more members. Thank you to Matthew Zeitlin for that one. If you enjoyed a picture of Boris Johnson, congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes...
1: Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client.
2: All right. More with The Atlantic's Edward Isaac DeVere. Isaac, as students of the campaign book genre, (laughs) David and I were putting together some campaign book scoop power rankings. The particular right. kinds of scoops that come out in your book and other books that just light Twitter on fire for a few days and get aggregated everywhere and all that kind of stuff. So help us out and and maybe use some examples from your book as we piece these together. All right. Power ranking. Uh, this is, uh, I don't know, this is in the five slot, maybe the one-on-one private meeting between famous politicians. I feel I love that little scooplet from campaign books. You have one in here. I believe it's December, 2018, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren having this summit in elizabeth warren's apartment tell us what happens in in that meeting
3: well this is a tricky moment for the two of them because they had both sort of assumed that the other one wasn't going to run and that they were uh, and each would be the progressive candidate in the field and then we're reaching the conclusion that oh no we're both going to run and neither of us is blinking uh and so like this is uh, to your point brian this Dinner had been reported a little bit at the time. Uh and uh and I this wasn't something that I knew of right away and then had to hold on to. Um I uh but I did recreate it in much more of a way. So they go in and they have this conversation and uh it became uh <sighs> very awkward between two people who already have a, an awkward relationship, who, between two awkward people who will have an awkward relationship. So it was like several layers of awkward uh, multiplied on top of each other. And uh, it it became important, I think, in telling the story of what happened between them because, first of all, this is the conversation that later gets revealed to be when Warren at least heard Sanders saying a woman can't run, it can't work, uh, that, of course, that would have been great for me to pop out uh, only in the book, but it came out in the reporting from one of my competitors at CNN uh, <laughs> along the way. Uh, and uh, and to Sanders, it became this weird moment for him of thinking, like, I don't know what Elizabeth is really talking about here. I'm just going to keep going and do what I'm doing. Uh, and so that yeah I think with a lot of these conversations and uh, how to get them to happen, politicians, especially high profile big name politicians like these two or others in the book, often walk out of private conversations and will give a readout uh, to close aides and say, This is what we talked about. And they do that protectively so that if something comes up and another version is uh, rather that the the aide can know what's going on uh, and uh and and try to correct the record but what that also means is that more than just two people know about these conversations and thankfully for me those can leak
2: (laughs) can i I just remind you of one detail from that meeting too is that bernie sanders thought elizabeth warren had cooked (laughs) lasagna for him yes and you report, and I assume exclusively in this book, that in fact Elizabeth Warren had ordered lasagna from a quote medium grade Italian restaurant. Uh,
3: that's true. I don't know that the Italian restaurant uh, that I that was in question there would like being referred to as medium grade, but uh, there are, there are of course much more substantive details in the book. But it is yes. funny that when Sanders walked away from this, he, like everybody that he told the story, does oh yeah, Elizabeth cooked lasagna, and it got to the point that. Um, <laughs> The Warren people <laughs> thought this was so weird. She doesn't cook, really. She's not a, someone who cooks, and that she would cook for – They, I actually saw the receipt for the the dinner at oh. one point. So, oh, wow. Uh, so I know for sure that she didn't cook. Wow, this
2: is a trust-but-verify moment right here. You saw the receipt to the medium-grade Italian restaurant.
3: Because there it was – the, the Sanders, in the Sanders mythology of what had happened, again, is that Warren had cooked for him and like that, that, was, that he had thought that that was nice. And the Warren mythology of it was – like that they were obviously much more frustrated about what happened in the meeting. And part of it was like, why are they saying Elizabeth cooked? That's crazy. And I was like, how co- – are you sure? Are you sure? There's no way she put – is it that she like had the lasagna in the oven? Is that what could have been confusing there? I mean, these are the questions you have to ask in doing the reporting. And finally it was like, no, here's
0: the receipt. <laughs> <laughs> also in the I guess as it goes to power rankings there's a lot of big names that are in the book that are that are maybe not the names that people would expect to hear and I don't mean like crazy names but in terms of these you know the power rankings of how you, you decide who gets in and who gets out it's sort of a flex to have a look inside of Team Obama in the middle of this and you have some serious Obama in, intel in here but also names like Well, AOC, when you have her uh, kind of struggling about whether or not to endorse Bernie Sanders and then deep breath, George Clooney uh, comes in (laughs) off the top rope at one point in the book. Um, Will you talk a little bit about those big names, but how, how you decide when to weave in the sort of background players that are actually bigger deals than the foreground players?
3: Well, with Obama, I think this is a story about the Democratic Party in these four years. And part of what that is, is that Trump was reacting to Obama. And part of what that was, is the Democratic Party was trying to figure out what it was, if not Barack Obama's party. And so he was an obvious player. In all of this to me, Uh, and given that Joe Biden ended up being the nominee, uh, that's Obama's vice president, he becomes an even more central piece of it, right? Uh, And so uh, structurally, it made sense. And then what I also saw was that Obama was reflecting in a really pretty direct way where the party was at different points, on things, and so uh, you see his initial reaction to Trump winning is shock, but thinking like, "Hey, let's see what happens here. Maybe we'll be able to work it out." That's what I think. Where a lot of Democrats were by the time of Trump uh, Trump's inauguration, he's really turned off about what's going on. Again, where a lot of Democrats were. He a couple months into it, now Trump's running as president, and Obama gets more and more on edge. And uh, again, that that reflects how Democrats were all the way through to last fall as Obama was on the campaign trail and hitting Trump really hard just ripping into him that you know and 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 thinking about this as a, a totally existential moment for America to go through uh, that's that's where I think you saw a lot of Democrats were. I think you saw a lot of the country overall. Uh, other people in there, the like George Clooney, there are a couple of moments in the book that uh, touch on celebrities. Uh, Lady Gaga makes more appearances in this book than I think most people would assume in a campaign book. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, the Clooney thing actually come came about because of telling the Obama story, mm-hmm. right? Because as I dug in and saw... What I thought what was obviously a pretty important moment of the leadership and the grassroots coming together over the March for Our Lives. And I knew that Obama had been, from reporting I'd been doing, that Obama had been involved behind the scenes and then starting to see how that happened. And it was Clooney calling him and that that, uh, that brings Clooney into it. It wasn't that I was like, let me tell a George Clooney story, uh, <laughs> right? Like, uh, <laughs> uh, that was not the intention. It was tell the Obama story, but that Clooney, uh, was central to this story in the end, and I think t- brings uh, is sort of the forerunner for what happened in a lot of 2020 when. A celebrity culture and culture overall became completely sucked into this this election, and when it felt to a lot of people like basically take away Scott Baio and John Voight and James Woods and like everybody else in Hollywood uh, is is against Donald Trump, Clooney is is there early out in doing that, but there's also that really I think really important conversation that Clooney has with uh, Obama about getting involved in the March for Our Lives, where Obama says, I'm full on radioactive right now. That's Obama saying that to Clooney. That's a moment that's important, not because he says this to George Clooney, but because of his sense of himself in politics.
2: All right. One more uh, category of scoop or scooplet is the big moment that happens during the campaign and then giving the story of what actually happens Sato voce. Am I saying that right? Uh, <laughs> after it happens. So we all remember Kamala Harris attacking Joe Biden in that very first Democratic debate over busing. You report on the conversations from Biden, from his wife, Jill Biden. Tell us what happened after that.
3: Well, like it, it's what happened before and what happened after that, right? You look at that moment and think this is a pretty clearly incredi- incredible and incredibly important moment to the campaign. Uh, and that night, of the debate, I was in Miami and I did a little conversation with people uh, who worked on the campaigns about it then. Uh, and there's some reporting from just being there and seeing how it played out that's in the book. But of course, they're not ready to talk about anything other than the adrenaline-pumped moment of it uh, after the fact. Of starting a couple weeks later, and certainly a couple months later, I had. Reserved that in my notes and said, "Come back to this. Come back." And then I would have one conversation with someone. And I got one part of the story, and then I got another conversation. Slowly, slowly pulled it out. Uh, I knew that it would be something that was in the book in a a way that mattered. Uh, I do remember the after watching. After the announcement that Harris was going to be the running mate last August, uh, I said to my wife, well, I guess that's going to be a whole chapter now. Uh, (laughs) And and then it became uh, a bigger reporting task to go over and over it and talk to as many people as I could. And so you see – so then it became like, okay, well, how did that moment – get to be, I wanted to know about the debate prep. It was clear that Harris had prepared for it, but what did that look, what are those conversations like? That's important because then you see how they landed on saying, uh, I know you are not a racist, which is the line that really lit Biden up. Uh, And in July of 2019, about three weeks after that debate, I was one of the reporters standing around Joe Biden in Dearborn, Michigan, uh, where he had come out of this restaurant uh, where uh, he'd met with some leaders and all the reporters were standing there waiting to ask questions. He asked a couple of questions and I uh, asked him a question that aggravated him um, (laughs) as I tended to do. And I said to him something, there had been a poll that showed that Uh, It was it was a CBS poll, and it showed that people, even though they liked Biden, they were more convinced that Warren and Harris would fight more. And I said to Biden, "Why do you think that that is the way that people are responding?" And he said, and he just started teeing off on the debate and about. Say and he was like, "Oh well, maybe it's because someone you know." She said to me, "Oh, you're not a racist, huh?" That's a nice thing to say. You're not a racist. I could see the anger. You know, his face was like seven inches away from me. It was pre-COVID, no face masks, anything, mm-hmm. um, and I could see it there. And that, uh, and the reporter's curiosity sets off uh, the well. What else is going on? If that's the level of anger that I can see, then there must be much more behind the scenes. So then I started tracking it back over with people, and then you see that uh what happens is that the night of the debate, when they're going into the commercial break after the, Harris makes the attack, that Biden uh, is so flustered and furious in the moment that he turns to Pete Buttigieg, and he, whom he doesn't know, and he says, uh, well, that was some fucking bullshit. And then uh, there was a phone call that Jill Biden had where she says, you know, to call him a racist with all the work that he's done, go fuck yourself, right? Like, those are moments that, uh, you know, reporters always love getting curses because they're juicy and they light up the internet. But I think in addition to that, more importantly than that, uh, you can see that these are the unvarnished thoughts that these folks are having. And I'll tell you, there were some other shards of that story that, uh, as I was uh, putting together the book, didn't quite uh, make it, uh, but they all in those are the you know you, you kind of hone to get the best material and the best version of the story, and and uh, and they were all telling me the same thing, which is that people were really really mad about that.
0: <laughs> now I, I know that fact checking in the book world is different than it is sometimes in newspapers and in magazines, but how exactly do you go about fact? Does one go about fact checking Joe Biden saying "Go fuck yourself"? Like is <laughs> <laughs> does do you do you call? biden's representative and ask her if she indeed said that
3: you have to you know the the, the everything that happened as reported in the book was checked with multiple people um, and so i have been uh deliberately not getting deep into what the process <laughs> looked like uh, yeah. but i am confident of the reporting and i think if you look at the response that jill biden had first her office response was something like uh There will be – I'm going to not do it complete justice, but it was something like there will be many books that are written about the campaign that have moments in them. Some will be true. Some will not. Uh, Our policy will not be to comment on any of them, which is, of course, what we call a (laughs) non-denial, right? And then uh, a couple days after that story broke, Jill Biden was at an event and a reporter called out to her and said, what about you saying that to the the vice president? And uh, she said herself something like, oh, that was two years ago. Everybody's moved on. Right. Which, again, is not. uh, No, I didn't say that.
0: (laughs) So just to pivot a little bit to the nuts and bolts aspect of this, because as Brian knows, I mean, as Brian said before, we're we're we're, you know, connoisseurs uh, slash nerds on the on the the subject. So Biden wins the election and I know there's going to be a bumpy road. Let's let's put a pin in that for one second. But when but after election night. What is your first call with your book editor like at that point? Like, what is, is there? What is the turnaround time in your head? And then what are the subsequent conversations once Trump starts disputing the election and obviously straight on up to, um, you know, the insurrection at the Capitol?
3: So it was election night and then it was sort of election week, right? Yeah. leading Getting up to that Saturday. Uh so I did not, over the, from the Tuesday night through the Saturday, uh, and I think there was one sort of check-in email with my book editor, but it wasn't that extensive because we mm-hmm. were all just sort of waiting for everything to play out. Uh, the book, uh, I will tell you, was due on January 4th. We had always had a sense <laughs> oh, that, man. Uh, th- that we were going to have a fast turnaround uh, and that there would need to be a fast turnaround. Obviously, there are a lot of competi- competitor books. There would be competing articles. Uh, I had made the argument in July of 2018 when deciding uh, about the the contract uh, that I said, look, I covered the Obama to Trump transition. That was pretty crazy. I think you want to give me time, at least a little bit, to cover the Trump to whatever transition or the Trump transition into uh, his second inauguration time and what would be going on in the aftermath. Uh, And my publisher, Viking, agreed. They said, great, how about January 4th? I said, okay. And then we were going to uh, probably jam a couple pages about the inauguration in once everything had been edited. And then I was, through December, turning in chunks of like five chapters at a time To my editor. Uh, And the morning of January 4th, uh, I sent him the final chunk except for the last chapter. And I said to him, look, I've got to hold back on this, I think, till the end of the week because. Number one, there are the Senate races in Georgia tomorrow. Let's see what happens, but we're going to need to account for it. Obviously, in the original conception of this book in 2018, we didn't know that there would be two Senate races in Georgia that were deciding the majority of the Senate on the day after the deadline. Uh, And then I said Wednesday is going to be... Uh, The certification of the vote. It'll be probably a lot of theatrics, but we have to account for whatever happens with it, Uh, not in any way anticipating the riot. Uh, And number three, the interview that I had with Biden that uh, ended up being at the beginning of February, there had been some discussion of it being the first week in January. And so I said, let's see what happens over the course of this week. My editor said, that's fine. I've got enough to edit here and just give me that chapter by Friday afternoon. Great. Okay. So then uh, the Senate races happen, and uh, uh, the day of the riot, that Wednesday morning, I drove from D.C. up to Wilmington thinking, let me just cover the story of what happens here through Biden's eyes. Uh, he was supposed to give this counter-programming, super boring speech about small business reinvestment, and uh, and so I was going to write about that and have it be whatever. And we're sitting in the, the hold room, the room right before – uh, we come into the room where he would be speaking as the riot begins. And so all the reporters are around, you know, the, like 10, 12 reporters. And we're all like, are you watching which- – you're on the CNN live feed? Who's on that? And we're like, oh, okay, it's crazy. Biden comes out and speaks, obviously, a lot later than he was planning to uh, and gives a very somber speech that day. Uh, there was a curfew that was put in place in D.C. And I – thought I wouldn't be able to get home. So at about six o'clock at night, I decided not to drive home, got a hotel room, stayed over in Wilmington, went back to Biden speaking the next day. And uh, <laughs> and as I'm walking into the room, my book editor had sent me an email that said, yeah, we're not going to make the, we can't do this on the schedule we thought, which was to put the book out probably around the 100 days mark at the end of April. And he said, you're going to have to write through it. We're going to push everything back a couple of weeks. And so the last 50 pages of the book were not on the proposal. They weren't on the outline. They weren't conceived of until after the book was supposed to be done. Uh, but then it's a chapter that is about the riot and the election questioning getting as intense as it did, and all of the legal strategy that uh, that the Biden team had it accounted for, thinking that Trump would uh, challenge the election, all those things going on. And then there's this chapter that is then not just a couple pages jammed in about the inauguration, but a full scene of the inauguration and how completely crazy that was to not have a crowd because of COVID, to not have even a full slate of people who could be there because uh, of officials and dignitaries because of the... uh, fences that were up and the military that was walking around and then it ends with this Biden interview that it should be said uh I probably in some other conception of the book or way that this would have worked I would have taken an interview with the president and scattered parts of it through the book and said oh this is what it, mm. but I I literally couldn't do it because the rest of the book was already like it closing in this uh, um way and it, it, so logistically it couldn't work out structurally there is something nice that the book is sort of like the long tale of how the hell it ended up that joe biden is in the oval office and then the last 15-20 pages of the book are joe biden in the oval office reflecting on all of it
2: all right isaac we're gonna go let you be a political reporter but i got one more for you did the experience of writing a campaign book convince you, hey, I'm gonna be Teddy White 2021 here. Coming back every four years. I'm gonna have something ready. Or are you thinking never again? That was that was a one-off. I'm gonna write a nice stately slow paced book about something else next time.
3: I'm a journalist. I don't know that stately slow paced is where (laughs) my future is. Uh I'm not sure what the next book will be. I did enjoy the process of this a lot and learned uh not only a lot about what was going on, but a lot about what uh what what the process of doing this all was it, it changed some of my approach to political journalism ov- overall to thinking like what am i missing in the moment right and how do i get that uh more uh and and, and how do you sketch out these characters even better so that people connect with them uh i so I, yeah i'm not sure that i'm saying battle for the soul part 2 is coming in uh you know <laughs> pre-order now for spring 2025 but uh, but I, I would assume that uh, there will probably be future book projects for me and political journalism is what I do. So the chances that it will relate to politics in uh, a more immediate way than, uh, you know, like you're not going to see out of me a, a history of Teddy Roosevelt or something like that. You'll probably see it more about what's happening now.
2: David, I just want to point out when you ask politicians if they're going to run for president in a couple <laughs> of years, they say something like that. <laughs> That's not a denial.
3: It's not a denial. No, i when Keeping I'm definitely Keeping all my options
2: not. open. I, I all just all want to I'll be say- a career of public service. I think I can help people. No, that's, that's exactly the kind of thing they say.
3: I need to talk it over with my family yeah, and my go. agent and there my editor. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Have a meeting. We got gotcha. you. All right. Edward Isaac DeVere. The book is Battle for the Soul, Inside the Democrats' Campaign to Defeat Trump. Out right now. Thank you so much for coming on the Press Box. Thanks for having me. All right, Brian and David back. Um, I'm still thinking about the receipt for the Italian food.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, listen, when when you do these books, um, especially when it's like the book exists and it's a reported book, you got to find the right title for it. And so there's was, there was definitely like numerous in-house email chains where they're trying to pick the right book for it. I just... I picked the right title for the book because you're just pulling all these little pieces of snippets of speeches and of various things. What will what evokes the whole content of the book? I hoped that medium grade lasagna made the list at some point.
2: <laughs> Do you think it was in one of those long subtitles? It was like Biden, yeah. comma Trump, <laughs> comma medium grade lasagna in the battle for the White House.
0: Yes, that's it. I'm sure.
2: It just because you had to have one funny thing in the list, I. <laughs> I suspect that actually happened. All right. It's time for David Shoemaker guesses the strained pun headline. All right. Friday's headline about an alcohol-drenched Vincent Van Gogh exhibit was, Will Absinthe Make the Art Grow Fonder? Truly one of the more strained puns in this segment. Today's headline, David, comes from Dr. Pants. It's from the (laughs) Boston Herald. Did you see the story about the humpback whale and the lobster diver? No. Oh, we didn't see this. A lobster diver, Michael Packard, was swimming in the waters near Provincetown, Massachusetts. He's like 45 feet below the surface. He later says, I felt this huge bump and everything went dark. And then I realized, oh, my God, I'm in the whale's mouth. I'm in a whale's mouth and he's trying to swallow me. The diver was actually semi-swallowed by the humpback whale. Okay, he was then spit out by the humpback whale, as he said in a Facebook post. I was in the closed mouth for about 30 to 40 seconds before he rose to the surface and spit me out. I am very bruised up, but have no broken bones. Okay, humpback whale swallows lobster diver humpback whale spits out lobster diver. What was the Boston Herald strained pun? headline well is this
0: immediately i'm thinking of jonah and jonah and the whale but the spitting back out thing now i'm i think it's going to be like a regurgitation pun so i don't really know
2: there's kind of two references i think for any whale headline there's jonah you son of a preacher man you and then there's pinocchio no come on okay that that's kind of borrowed right but there's there's, What's there's the other famous, whale? Famous novel about a whale that you and I certainly have oh, not Moby read. Oh, the...
0: Moby Dick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry. there was it? Lobster.
2: Moby. Moby. Remember, he's spitting the I lobster. Know. Mo-
0: mo- um, Moby, uh, Remember, this is the Boston thick. Herald. We just M- want to set the aesthetics Moby here. Shtick. Moby, <laughs> uh, Moby, um, dang! I know it's going to be so obvious. What? What is it? I have no. Uh, idea.
2: Uh, that lobster Yick? man tastes terrible. Moby ick. Oh gosh. Moby ick.
0: <laughs> that's really taking us a long way. The whole the, the premise of their headline was that the man tasted bad. <laughs> is there a colon in there? Is it like Moby yeah. colon ick? That would be. I, I might like that a little bit
2: more. That, that's actually pretty good. Uh, yeah, it was like I think the lobster man did not taste like the krill or plankton the humpback whale was expecting to eat. That's the comic idea here. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Production Magic by Erica Cervantes. We are back Friday with perhaps another press box post game interview and more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David.
0: See you later, Brian.